following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Before the message, I want to read a few verses of Scripture for you. Out of 1 John chapter 3. Beginning at uh, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I'm going to read that again. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that you are the one that we praise and you are the one that we adore. And you are the one that the church is gathered to worship today. We praise you for that. You're the only one worthy of our worship and praise. We rejoice, too, Father, that... Your people, brothers and sisters, have chosen to come and gather in this place today to hear what you have to say to us, to sing praise to you, to pray. And so, Father, we gather as your people. We look forward to what you're going to say and what you're going to do. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears to the truths that you proclaim today, not from a preacher's mouth, for this is a sinful preacher. Forgive his sins, but from the very heart of God. And, Lord, we know that there are people in our fellowship that want to be here and can't today. We have elderly people that are at home, can't get out. We have members in nursing homes and assisted living places. We have people in the hospital. We lift them up to you. We pray that you would, um, that you would minister to them, that you would use us to minister to them, Lord. For you have given us the worldly goods to show love to our brothers and sisters. And so, 
We pray, Lord, you might encourage us to do that. Because in many cases, those people, Lord, that are stuck at home today and can't get out want to be here more than we wanted to be here. They wanted to be with the family. We pray, too, Father, for our world, a world in despair, trying times for Satan to take hold in our world and even in our own community. And, Lord, we pray that you would bring together the racial divide in our community, that you would bring healing to our community, that you would help us to see you in all of this. And those who are leaders, those who you've placed above us, give them wisdom and strength as they walk their community through these days. And in the end of it all, Lord, we pray that you would get all the glory and all the honor. We pray for wisdom for our national leaders, our president and his family, our vice president and his family, others who make decisions that affect our lives every single day, our governor and her family, our mayor and his family. We just ask, God, that you would protect them and encourage them, uh, that you would draw them to yourself. Send revival. Send revival to the United States. Send revival to the Charleston community. Send revival to Grace on the Ashley. Make us the people you've called us to be for your glory. Father, we've gathered here with hurts and pains and sorrows and grief. and Some maybe even at the point of despair. We've gathered here with physical ailments, with emotional, mental problems, and we pray, Lord, for your healing power to be at work in our lives today. We rejoice that we can come to a Father who can take care of all these needs and so many more. Hear our prayer and answer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13. Give you a little heads up with that part one there. Doesn't tell you how many other parts come after that. Well, let me just read it. Um, I wasn't going to do this, but let me just read this text uh, for you today. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. That's emphatic too. It's never Ever in a million years, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. That's an emphatic word, that never. That you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. As Lewis Johnson said, that's where Simon Peter all of a sudden became an Arminian. Uh, And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he said to him, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's the word of God. For the people of God. Every year, the first full week of April, they have this little golf tournament in Augusta, Georgia. And I'm privileged to get to go every year. And for those of you who knew that or know that, God forgives your jealousy. (laughs) The crowds are enormous. It's hard to even describe. Um, Even walking through the crowds, it it takes some quite an effort to to maneuver. And I'm not very tall, and so if if there's somebody you want to see. You gotta, I gotta stand on my tiptoes, um, to see whoever I wanna see, whatever famous golfer I'm looking at. <clears throat> or peer around somebody, or if I have a chair, uh, up close, you know, I have to work my way through the crowd just to get to see where I wanna see. It's quite, a, quite an experience. Believe it or not, I was thinking about this Friday. You would think, you're at the Masters. Don't think about your sermon. No, I was. I suspect that 2,000 years ago, during the Passover in Jerusalem, that crowd was pretty much like that. People from everywhere had come to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, and, 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 and so... Here in, in God's 
miraculous, providential way, he made sure that the most most people possible were going to be in Jerusalem to witness a death and a resurrection. Masses of people, nowhere to turn. People purchasing animals to sacrifice. All those lambs being killed and the, the busyness. It's the perfect time to have the most people possible to witness what was going to take place on this particular week. We've been talking about for a couple of weeks. We celebrated the resurrection last Sunday. People standing on their tiptoes wanting to see that man carry that cross down the Via Dolorosa. Crowds, lots of people. God's perfect timing. What's going to happen? They're going to observe this and what are they going to do? They're going to all go back home and tell people what they saw. The experience of those few days. You see, Passover has looked back, backward, and it looks forward. Passover looked backward to God saving his people by the blood of the Lamb, and it looked forward. To God saving his people by sending the Messiah. Now, we don't, we don't know when Jesus was born. I don't have any idea of the date when Jesus was born. Uh, we don't have any idea of really any specific dates of any large event uh, in the New Testament. Except... For this time. Actually, um, this past, just a few days ago, April 7th, April 7th in the year 30 is the best guess of that date. We know Passover is the 14th of Nisan, Nisan being the first. Um, month in the Jewish year on the, on the Jewish calendar, and <clears throat> and it, we we can we it's pretty accurate. We can get pretty close to when we believe Jesus died on the cross, April seventh, in the year thirty. And this is Thursday night. And John spends. Five chapters on this one night. Five chapters in about a, quite possibly a five-hour period, more or less, in the life of Jesus. And none of what we see in these next five chapters is in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you put them all together, you get a parallel version or something, you, you put them all together, a lot went on in those roughly five hours. A lot was said in those, there was an immense amount of teaching going on in those five hours. Now, if I were Jesus, aren't you glad I'm not? If I were Jesus, 
Um, I would have said all that he said in those five hours just because I realize that those knuckleheads just haven't got it yet. And we're 24 hours from me hanging on a cross. And so I've got a lot to say. This, these five chapters are typically called the upper room discourse. Um, back in the 80s, uh, what's this, 2000, 30 years ago, 1985, I took a class, a graduate class called the Upper Room Experience. Uh, favorite theological class I ever took, Bible class I ever took. And we call this the Upper Room Discourse. Some people call it the Upper Room Experience um, <clears throat> in these five chapters. And John nowhere mentions something called the upper room. Other people call it the farewell discourse. It, to me, is the most fascinating and exciting pieces of Scripture. And we'll look at these first 17 verses uh, today and next Sunday. Well, maybe verse number 1 today and 16 next week. I don't know. God, God willing. But this introduction is important. It's a must. Um, because it sets up what, what we're going to be preaching for the next few months as we walk through these five chapters. You see, the Gospel of John, I'll give you a picture of it. The Gospel of John begins with a prologue. You know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was in those first 18 verses. And, and, and it ends with an epilogue. And that's where Jesus is is um, restoring Peter's ministry. Uh, it's just Peter's restoration there at the end of these two bookends, the prologue and the epilogue in the Gospel of John. And then in between those two bookends are really two volumes. Verses one, chapters 1 through 12 is the book of signs. That's where we see the seven signs that we've been going through for uh, quite a number of months now. Uh, the seven signs and the truth of those seven signs. But then at the end of all of that, in John chapter 12, at the end of the book of signs, verse 37, we read, Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then beginning with chapter 13, we have this transitional verse in verse 1, and then Again, the upper room discourse. That would be called the book of passion. You've got the book of signs and the book of passions. If you divide um, 1 through 12 and 13 through 21. You see, the vast majority, the, the mass of the people of Israel did not respond to the miraculous ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation He's given to them is complete, but for the most part, they still reacted negatively to the ministry of Jesus. These signs were enough to point to Him as their Messiah. And... Largely, no one responded. Some did, by the grace of God. 
These were the ones who, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through the Father, have brought to the Son. We read about that in these first. Well, in, cha- in chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So those, those are, that's all Jesus has right now. His disciples, a few others outside that inner circle as well, brought people to himself. So the Father has uh, drawn the apostles, and some others to the Lord Jesus during this period of time. But largely, people have rejected. As we saw at the end of chapter 12, they still did not believe in him. Comparing John with the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, generally, John, uh, John Calvin tells us that he saw the, sh- the soul of Jesus, a description that Calvin uses, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us the body of Jesus. Here, here's his quote. I think it's helpful for us. The doctrine which points out to us the power and benefit of the coming of Christ is far more clearly exhibited by John than by the rest. And as all of them... It, The same point in view to point out Christ, the three former Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, exhibit his body. If we may be permitted, I don't know where that 0125 came from. We may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits his soul. On this account... I'm accustomed to say that this gospel is a key to open the door for understanding the rest, which is interesting because it's written after the other three gospels. For whoever shall understand the power of Christ, as it is here strikingly portrayed, will afterwards read with advantage what the others relate about the Redeemer who is manifested. So Calvin says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the body of Christ, in so many words, if he, he says, if I may use that word, we see the body of Christ. In John, we see the soul of Christ. And John is actually good preparation for understanding more clearly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, except the chronology um, is backwards. So, we get to John 13. The beginning of this discourse. We have Jesus' example of the foot washing. We see the dismissal of Judas. He gives us a new commandment. We see the promise of the Holy Spirit. 13, 14, 15, 16 is just promise after promise after promise after promise for his own. As he says in this first verse. Then in 17, we have the high priestly prayer, really the Lord's Prayer. Longest prayer in the New Testament, where Jesus prays for his own people. See 13, verse 1? To depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world. Those are the ones he prays for in chapter 17, his own. You and me. 
So the Lord's going to suffer. And then he's going to leave them for a lengthy period of time. It's a long time, isn't it? 2,000 years at this point. (laughs) He wants to prepare them for the time when he won't be physically present with them. And he wanted to prepare you and me for the same thing. A time when he won't be physically present. That fact, he's not going to be with them in physical form. They've begun to rely on that. But as we'll look at, we'll look at more clearly maybe next week. I will certainly look at clearly when we get to chapter 14. And that is, when Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to be with his people, we have access to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, unlike the disciples had. We've got it better than they had when they had him physically. 24-7, we've got Jesus. They didn't. So he gives them the upper room discourse to prepare them for the future. And it's wonderful preparation in and of itself, not counting the other, the synoptics. And so it's, um, it's not surprising that John spends a great deal of time, five chapters on these, this evening in the life of Jesus. Uh, clearly, John's intention is to supplement the other Gospels, not to duplicate the other Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the central feature of the upper room is the the, the establishing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. John doesn't even mention that. Instead, he focuses on another event here at the very beginning. That's the washing of the disciples' feet. So in dividing the Gospel of John into those two parts, I hope that helps you see it a little more clearly. <clears throat> And we see that division, particularly in this uh, introductory verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Let me go back to the feast of the Passover, because you might be confused already. There's a lot of debate about the feast John is talking about here. I mentioned the differences in the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John and theologians and commentators have debated the differences between John's Gospel and the Synoptics over and over and over and over. And we won't go into all the possible ways to put the four Gospels together. The Synoptics deal with the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul deals with the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, John doesn't even mention it. The synoptics talk about this meal occurring on the Passover. John mentions something prior to the Passover. Now, before the feast of the Passover. And there are several possible legitimate solutions in bringing the Gospels in line with each other. And that discussion would take much too long for a Sunday morning uh, sermon, and so we won't deal with all those. I'm simply going to say that quite possibly John thought the other guys had covered it adequately. 
The other, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had covered it sufficiently. Why say something again that's already been said three times? He may, he could have had those books in his hands, even. It's unlikely, but he could have had those books in his hands already. They'd all been written. And here's John writing the Gospel of John 60 years, 60 years after this event took place. But this is a transition time. This is a transition from the, you know, this is the last legitimate Passover, right? Have you ever thought about that? This is a transition from the last legitimate Passover to the Lord's Supper. Because the next night, the perfect lamb once and for all, is going to be slain. There's no other need for any Passover after this night. After April 7th in the year 30, there should not be another Passover. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. We've talked about that hour um, quite a few times in the first 12 chapters because for most of that time, John or Jesus have declared that he slipped away from the religious leaders. He got away secretly because it was not his hour. Now it is. And we've talked about that over and over when it's come up. His hour had come. His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Why are we his own? Because we've been bought with a price. Hallelujah. He loved his own, and he loved them to the end. Love is the most common word that we see from now to the end of the book. Life and light are words that are used in the first 12 chapters. Now the word love is predominant. Most common word in the next five chapters. And that's how we see that there's this division between the first 12 chapters and 13 through 21. Let me show you how these words fit um, throughout this book. For life, chapters 1 through 12, it's used 50 times, four times per chapter. In the second half, 13 through in just the just the upper room discourse, 13 through 17, life is only used six times. That's about one per chapter, less than one. Light is used 32 times in uh, the first 12 chapters, 
That's about three times per chapter. In the upper room discourse, 13 through 17, light's not used once. But then look at the shift. Chapters 1 through 12, love is used 12 times, about one per chapter. Look at that. 13 through 17, 34 times, seven per chapter. You should have seen me counting all those words throughout that. But that's interesting, isn't it? So clearly the theme in the farewell discourse, the upper room discourse, is love. Pure, true, humble love. Love born out of true humility. Now why would that be necessary? Why would he start at the very beginning of this discourse having loved his own? This is just the introduction. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Why would love be necessary? Why did love become a major theme right before, 24 hours roughly before the crucifixion and the resurrection? I'm going to point to you to a couple passages of Scripture, one this week and one next week. Um, But first, let's go to Luke chapter 9, verse 46, early in his ministry. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And then the same night that John's talking about here in Luke chapter 22, guess what? Verses 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. That's the context that we have here in chapter 1 when we make this shift to love. That's the context by which Jesus gives us the new commandment later in the chapter. That's the context as to why we have the word love seven times per chapter until chapter 17. They're arguing with each other. The artistic paintings and the drawings that you've seen of the Last Supper seem so relatively peaceful. They don't display the truth of the matter. It's great art, but that's not how it was. Even at the end, they were fighting over their place on some earthly kingdom. They still didn't grasp that the cross was the supreme act of love. Somehow they still didn't grasp that that's where Jesus was going. And they had about 24 hours to get it. They were most concerned with their own honor. They were most concerned with their their own dignity. They were most concerned with their own place in this world. They weren't about to take the role of a slave. So they just all sat there with dirty feet. 
I can't imagine how Jesus could, would, his head would not just explode with grief over what's going on in their lives. They come into this meal bickering, fighting each other, arguing. Arguing is the word that Luke uses. Like a bunch of boys on the playground fighting with each other. Who's going to sit at the right hand? Who's going to sit at his left hand? And that's the setting where they're sharing this meal together. He loved them so much to the end. He loved them to the end completely. In spite of all that was happening. 24 hours before he's hanging on the cross. And what is he thinking of? He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what he's going to be going through. He loves them to the end. That can mean several things. Some of your Bibles may translate them different ways. He could love them to the end of his earthly life. The disciples may have given up on him and what he was going to offer them, but they, he never gave up on them. Though they stopped thinking about Jesus and they were only thinking about themselves, he never stopped thinking about them. Whose problems were worse at the moment? Who was more concerned for the other? He loved them to the end. He also loved them to the end. That could mean that, that his love will never end. Jesus will never stop loving his own. It isn't a love that comes and goes, that's displayed in their arguing and bickering with each other. It's, it's not a love that's here today and it's gone tomorrow. His love, that love will never end. To the end also means a love that reaches to the fullest extent. Some translations do say he loved them to the uttermost. I love that. Poured out the cup of his love all the way to the bottom for us. The ultimate extent of his love. It seems best to me. He loved them to the utmost degree of which he was capable. The perfect, infinite God of the universe. He loved his own to the utmost degree of which he was capable. I love that hymn. Loved with everlasting love. Led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, Thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine. In a love that cannot cease, I am His and He is mine. My singing made a baby cry. <laughs> Don't you love that? Love with everlasting love. Led by grace so that I could know that love. The Spirit breathing 
from above has taught me who I am. I am his, and he is mine. That's wonderful. There are about seven more verses to that hymn, if you don't know it. And that's the setting. We find ourselves here in John 1, John 13, verse 1. That's the setting by which Jesus, in verse 4, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. These guys are bickering, arguing with each other, sitting down at a table. They forgot that their feet were dirty. They forgot that somebody was supposed to wash their feet. There wasn't a slave to do it. So Jesus rose from supper. He poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towels wrapped around him. I mean, evidently, they rushed to get things together. You look at another gospel, and he sent them ahead to get things together. Came their normal self-centered selves and had forgotten that they were to wash feet before they came in. So Jesus assumes the place of a slave. Because a slave usually carried out this task. And that's why we have five whole chapters that deal with the love of God for his own. It's wonderful. The stress is not on the new covenant like it is on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Clearly the theme toward the end of those gospels. It's on Jesus' love for his disciples. He loved them to the end. This step we see at the beginning of this chapter is really just a preview. What we see in the washing of the feet is a preview of the meaning of the cross, which we won't look at until next week. Let me go through. What kind of love is this? I want to go through these themes real quickly as this is just an overview. We'll get a little deep, deeper next Sunday. First, it was a love that could not be defeated. It's a love that could not be quenched by evil. Verse 2, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. So... Jesus rose, laid aside, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That first phrase, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, in the Greek modifies rose, laid aside, taking, tied. John gives it, it seems out of place, doesn't it? He loved his own during the supper. Oh, wait, let me tell you this. When the, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That's just a parenthesis there. He could have said during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things. In, but he didn't do that. He wanted us to know what Satan had done to Judas. It's very important in this message. What Jesus has done is being done with the full... Not, why, is it, why, why is it so important? That the devil had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus. Because in just a few moments, Jesus is going to get on his knees and take his clothes off and wash Judas's feet. The perfect display of love your enemies. 
Jesus has full knowledge of the coming betrayal of Judas. Now, we know that now. We knew Jesus, he's God, and we know that he knew that. But John wanted us to know that Jesus knew that. Plus, the deny, he knew the denial of Peter that was coming. Without hesitation, Jesus puts that love into action. And despite evil in mankind, the evil in men's heart, the evil in your heart, my heart, despite the cowardly ways that we behave, even those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, He still displays His perfect, humble love freely. Secondly, it was a love that was given by Jesus, fully aware of His own position, His exalted position, His power. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, You know, they might have suspected, especially if you listen to preachers today, if you want to call them preachers, if you listen to preachers today, they might have suspected, you know, Jesus, if you really loved me, you, I'd be rich. If you really, really loved me, you'd make sure that I would never, ever get sick. Jesus, if you really loved me, you'd given me you'd give me some high place in society. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were arguing about. You would give me influence and some exalted position if you loved me. Jesus, if you loved me, I'd be successful. Jesus, if you loved me. I'd be skinny and tall and better looking. You didn't think that was personal, did you? But he loved me despite that all-powerful position, the ability to do all those things, the ability to make them rich, the ability never to make them never be sick, the ability to give them influence. He had the power and the ability to do all those things. And in spite of that, he served them humbly deliberately subjected himself to submitting to an authority that was beneath him. Remember his words to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Calm authority in the middle of All the accusations of his enemies clearly shows that 24 hours later, Jesus is a voluntary victim. He was not unwilling in his expression of this sort of love. Third, the love of Christ transcended the barriers of social class. The words, Jesus knowing that same verse, that he had come from God and was going back to God. Knowing. Fully conscious of his divine source. He's the son of God. The, the, the declaration as the son of God is what got him in trouble in the first place. 
He's clear. He's going back to God. He's, he, he's cl- very clear on his divine destiny that soon he'd be seated at the right hand of the Father. And he'll stoop to minister to those who are just naturally inferiors. God's love jumped over those boundaries of class distinctions and made the Lord of glory the servant of all man. You died that, that, that. That act of foot washing is an amazing example of lowliness, isn't it? Have you ever experienced that before? you ever been in a service like that? I don't mean a service like... Sometimes we, I've been in foot washing services before. I avoid them for clear reasons. But the foot washings today, if you've ever experienced it... Um, is not the same because when you go to a foot washing today, you make sure before you go that your feet are cleaner than they've ever been. Now, we don't get it in today's Western world, but in the, an Oriental household of that day, and even other places in the world today, a slave washed the feet of guests who had come through with dust and filth on their feet on the street. From the street. I've explained the attitudes already of the disciples as they're coming in. And they're in a private home. And, and it's secret because Jesus is trying to avoid... Jesus is, Jesus is trying to avoid the, uh, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish leaders. So it's a, a secret meal that they're sharing together. So there obviously wasn't a slave available. And we know that that was part of God's plan all along. And furthermore, these disciples, they're still preoccupied with who's going to be vice president, who's going to be attorney general, and on and on and on in this coming kingdom. And they were jealous men, aren't we? Weren't you jealous when I said I went to the master's? They were jealous of each other. Listen. Listen, Jesus. Just in case this guy is going to be sitting on your right hand, I'm not going to stoop down and wash his feet. They weren't, certainly they weren't going to lower themselves beneath one of their brothers. They'd fight for a throne, but they surely wouldn't fight for a towel. Uh, fourth, the love of Jesus was an active love. We see that rose from supper. What did he do? All those things. Rose, laid aside, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water in a basin, began to wash their feet. It's an active love. Two times the meal was interrupted. In verse 4, it says it was during supper. This action took place. And in verse 4, emphasizes he rose from the supper. They rushed in. They got things ready for the supper, but nobody thought about washing feet. And their self-centered selves wouldn't dare humiliate themselves. Maybe Jesus paused. Maybe he waited. Maybe he wanted to see one of them going to get up. One of them going to take the place of a servant before he took on the assignment himself. 
however nasty this assignment was, had to be performed. Humble love took the initiative. Love born out of humility. Perfect opportunity for an example here. And Jesus tells them later it was an example. It's really an example about the cross. And we'll talk about that next week. And then fifthly, the love of Jesus cleanses. That encounter between Jesus and Peter. And you're never going to wash my feet. Oh, well, then watch all of me. Illustration goes far deeper than a simple argument about social standing. We don't have time for it today. You see, this is a parable. This is not the institution of another ordinance, some people would say. This is a parable. Jesus didn't speak this parable as he spoke most parables. He acted it out. It reveals to us what uncleanness is and what is clean. It reveals to us what our assignment is. Lowering ourselves to offer pure, true, humble love. I'm sad to say, I don't think we love. We don't love. Not this way. We love our friends. We love people who agree with us. We love our children most of the time. We don't love those who are stabbing us in the back. We don't love those who are disagreeable. We don't love those with dirty feet. We say we follow Jesus. But we don't. You know, after Jesus said and did these things, he went to the cross and died. Brothers, you married brothers, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church and died for her? Brothers and sisters, are you willing and able to go to the lowest depths of humility simply to show love to somebody else? I know you don't like to get dirty, but it's clear in this teaching. The more humble you are, the greater your capacity to love. You think highly of yourself, you can't love others. The more, the lower you go, (laughs) you get that? The lower you go, the greater your capacity 
to love others. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Humility and love are connected. You can't love thinking well of yourself. Spurgeon said it very clearly. If there is a position in the church where the worker will have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. If you can perform a service which few will ever seek to do themselves and appreciate when performed by others, yet occupy it with holy delight. Covet humble work. And when you get it, be content to continue in it. There's no great rush after the lowest places. You'll rob no one by seeking them. You seek that kind of humble love, you'll be by yourself. Spend it up, friends. Give it all. Don't you on that last day step over that river and have anything left over. Leave it all here. Spend it all. For the glory of God. And certainly may God give us grace to wash feet today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn. If you have questions about this message, you want somebody to pray with you and recommit your life, you want to talk to somebody about what's going on in your life, our elders will be in the back. We ask during this hymn if you just make your way back there. Um, they'll speak to you, spend time with you. Do that. Do it today. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth of your word, the exciting wonder of your word. And we pray that you might pierce our hearts with your truths and use us for your glory as we kneel in front of others to serve them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.